bring you the final installment of the three episodes we recorded at the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester, Massachusetts. This week, we're talking to Angela Polly Hudson about her latest book, Real Native Genius, How an Ex-Slave and a White Mormon Became Famous Indians. Real Native Genius follows the life of an ex-slave from Mississippi named Warner McCary, who took on a Native American identity, calling himself Okatubby and claiming to be Choctaw. Soon after, he married a divorced white Mormon woman from New York named Lucy Stanton, who reinvented herself as a Delaware Indian named La Seal. The two then embarked on an astounding adventure spanning the whole of North America, giving musical performances, working as Indian doctors, and participating in the early Mormon church. As Angela explains, they used popular notions of Indianness to disguise their backgrounds, protect their marriage, and make a living. It is an exciting story, and we are incredibly excited to have Angela with us today. She is an associate professor of history at Texas A&M University, where she joined the faculty after receiving her PhD in American Studies from Yale University in 2007. She's also received numerous fellowships and grants for her research in American Indian history, the cultural history of the U.S. South, and the intersection of African American and American Indian experiences. Last, but certainly not least, she was also an undergraduate at Auburn University. And yes, she and I talk about football. But more importantly, we talk about the early South, a designation, as you'll see, that is trickier than it sounds. Your book, Real Native Genius, examines the figure of Okotobi. Who is Okotobi? So Okotubby, um is a stage name. Okotubby was born Warner McCary um, in about 1810, 1811. We're not exactly sure when he was born. Um, and he was born in Natchez, Mississippi. He uh, became, um, he was the slave of uh, a man named James McCary. And um, when his owner died, he uh, was transferred in the will to his own free black relatives. So he became the property of his own free black relatives who were emancipated in um, their owner's will. So from the very beginning, he had a, a pretty complicated childhood, even, even in comparison to, to other enslaved youth um, at the time. He remained a slave until he was about 33 years old and was finally manumitted by his half-brother. Um, and about that time, he began traveling around. He had discovered in his youth that he was an immensely talented musician and performer. And he had sort of dabbled in street performance and, and playing um, primarily um, the flute and the fife when he was a youth. So after he's manumitted, he becomes a performer and he starts traveling around the South. Um, and shortly thereafter, uh, he leaves the South and begins to craft a Choctaw persona for himself. And as best I can reconstruct, as I try to reconstruct in the book, he does this um, not so much to, um, you know, the sort of standard story about him is that he does this to escape slavery. He's already a free man by the time he develops this identity for himself. So um, I believe he does it to become um, more successful as a stage performer, um, to really sort of craft a, a different kind of persona that people would pay money to come and see. 
Um, so, so the book sort of follows his um, many evolutions um, in this persona and, um, and his subsequent marriage and career with his wife, uh, the, the white Mormon of the title, um, Lucy Stanton, or as she's later known, Lost Seal. Now, is there a particular reason? Is it because he's in Mississippi that he picks Choctaw identity? Do you think him being born in, around the era of Choctaw removal, does this influence his decision? Why, of all things, Choctaw? So, um, I think, yes, being in Mississippi, and, and he comes of age during the era of Indian removal. Um, you know, I postulate in the book that he probably even witnesses some of the episodes of Choctaw removal um, through the region in, in Adams County where, where he's growing up. Um, and, you know, he, I think, was, was deeply influenced by the fact that American Indians, and especially Southeastern Indians and, and the Choctaws specifically, were a major topic of conversation among um, the people that he circulated most with outside his own family. So that's to say he was hired out as a slave. He worked among the white elites, the so-called Natchez Nabobs, during his youth. And this would have been a major topic of conversation among the people that he, that he was circulating with at the time. So I think those things certainly influenced the choice. Um, his name, Okatubby, is reminiscent of, for example, Mushalatubby. He claims, in fact, to be the long-lost son of Choctaw Chief Mushalatubby, who was a real person. Um, and uh, so he's drawing on names that sound familiar. Um, place, there's a, a place named Okatibi. Um, is also a name that comes out in a William Gilmore Sims story. So uh, Daniel Littlefield, who had written previously on Okatubby in his autobiography, had made that connection as well, that perhaps he's also drawing on, alluding to this William Gilmore Sims short story um, about an Indian child who is kidnapped and sold into slavery and raised as an African American. So I think all those things kind of um, could have possibly influenced his choice there. I think the whole point, though, is he's trying to be believable. He wants this to be plausible, right? So he's not claiming to be um, a member of a tribe or a nation from far out in the West or from somewhere in New England. Um, and so he's, he's, in many ways, I think, very savvy about the choices that he's made. And... There is no, just to be clear, there is really no genealogical evidence that he was likely in any way Choctaw. I realize from this period, records particularly for people who are born into slavery are not stellar. But as best you can tell, there's really no reason to believe that anything about this Choctaw reinvention is real. Yeah, so I, I try in the book to not necessarily say, you know, um, definitively that he does not ha have Choctaw ancestry. Um, but there is no evidence that he does. Um, what I do talk about in the book is um, the long history of intermixture between people in um, particularly the, the early South and that this is part of what makes his story plausible. And, and, you know, I sort of play back and forth with the idea in the book of whether or not, as a child anyway, he actually believed this story, right? Or did he completely craft it from whole cloth when he's an adult, right? Um, and I, I sort of 
explore different possibilities about why he might have believed this, why he might have been looking for an alternative genealogy for himself as a child. I mean, if you think about he's growing up as the enslaved child of his own family members. So crafting an alternative genealogy, an alternative sort of kinship network, you know, might not have been, um, it's, it might have been something that he did to, to sort of um, make himself, you know, put himself in a better situation, at least um, in fantasy. But it's, it's entirely possible he had Choctaw, Choctaw ancestors. And the truth is we, we can never know, right? Um, one of the things that, that scholarship on um, Warnham Carey or Okatubby had not put forth as a possibility previously was that he might have actually, he could have been kidnapped into this McCary family, um, but he might have actually been an enslaved person held by a Choctaw owner, right? So the two possibilities that have existed thus far in the scholarship is that he is really Choctaw, as he claims, and, he, and the story about his kidnapping is true, or that he is solely of, of African descent or of African and European descent, and that he's completely fabricated the story of Choctaw descent. Um, I put forward that, you know, as um, a slaveholding nation in the Southeast prior to removal, it's possible that he was in fact um, a slave, perhaps even of Moshe Latubi, who was one of the largest slave owners in the Choctaw Nation. Um, and, and that doesn't preclude the possibility that he also had Choctaw ancestry, because of course some Choctaw slave owners also um, engaged in, um, you know, interrelations with their enslaved people. So I sort of lay out all the possibilities of where that, of what his ancestry could be, but then I also say, but we can't know, and in some ways it's irrelevant because he's never claimed by Choctaw people, he's never claimed by Choctaw communities. In fact, later in his life he's repudiated directly by Choctaws in Indian territory. Um, and whatever his actual sort of biological descent may have been, the way in which he presents himself as a Choctaw for the rest of his life, or for most of his life, um, is very much based on popular cultural ideas of Choctawness, if you will, as opposed to anything that we can identify um, from the ethno-history of Choctaw or other Southeastern Indians. And that makes sense, that we, not only is it not something that we can't know, but that it also, none of it, none of that, whether it's true or not, influences where he takes the identity of Okatubby. So he takes the identity and it carries him other places and he does other things with it. That's right, that's right. And what, where does it take him? So the book follows, I, I sort of cover all of this ground about his youth in the first chapter, and then I move into relatively quickly um, his union with Lucy Stanton. Um, so one of the places it takes him that, that really I didn't know about when, we, when I first embarked on this um, research is that it takes him among the early Mormons. Um, he meets and marries uh, Lucy Stanton, whose family was one of the first families to convert to the LDS religion or Latter-day Saint religion in the early 1830s. So when the first group of missionaries come, um, leave New York to, to spread their, their gospel. Uh, so it's, um, it seems sort of uh, surprising, I think, at first to hear that kind of twist in the story, um, but his performance of Indianness appeals to the early Mormons who have a special place for American Indians in their theology 
and who also had um, in many ways sort of imbibed these popular cultural notions about what American Indians were supposed to do and look like and, and sound like and, and, and that sort of thing. So that's one of the places that it takes him. Um, it also enables him to develop this relatively successful, although it was briefly successful, um, stage career. So he becomes uh, almost a sort of household name in the urban Northeast as a flute player, as a musical performer, um, as Okatubby, the, the virtuosic Choctaw flutist, that was often how you heard him, or the celebrated Choctaw flutist. Um, you know, his time in the limelight is relatively brief, but, um, but it's really notable. I mean, news about him is carried all across the nation. Um, and then ultimately, um, it allows him to develop a sort of side career as an Indian medicine man or an Indian doctor. This both um, goes uh, sort of parallels his, his uh, career as a stage performer, but then it also becomes, um, I think, a way to support himself when his stage career begins to unravel um, in the early 1850s. Was it controversial that this white woman was marrying this man, whether he mm. be right. of African-American descent or Choctaw descent? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or was that just all considered fine? He was apparently initially accepted by the Mormons, at least the Mormons who were responsible for baptizing him and for sealing him, which is the eternal marriage in the LDS Church. Um, he was initially accepted as an American Indian by these individuals. Um, there's some evidence to suggest that other people in the church from the very beginning did not buy his story and thought he was African American instead. But the people who baptized him and sealed him to Lucy Stanton um, seemed to have believed he was American Indian, and joining in marriage with an American Indian was actually part of one of Joseph Smith's revelations. He prophesied that one of the things that, um, that Mormons would do as part of spreading the gospel to the Lamanites, which is what they called American Indians as descendants of a lost tribe of Israel, was to actually unite in marriage with them. Now, um, he, he did have some specific things he said about white women, but mostly what he was talking about was white men marrying Indian women. So, I mean, and, and this is sort of to be expected for the time in the 1830s that, that most of the possibilities of kind of intermarriage that were being discussed, all the prerogatives were in the hands of white men, right, in terms of who they were going to marry, and that was how the gospel was going to be spread. But there is some evidence that he left the door open for white women to, to join with, um, with Indian men. That's not to say it wasn't controversial among some members of the church and certainly in the, among the general public. Um, at the time they were sealed in the, in the church, um, in the temple at Nauvoo, um, which is in Illinois, um, interracial marriage between an African-American man and a white woman was, was punishable by law. It was against the law. Um, and so one of the things that I discuss in the book is the way in which his persona as an Indian and then later on, but her, her um, persona as an Indian as well, becomes a way for them to protect their interracial marriage as they travel around in the antebellum United States. You know, a perceived black man and a perceived white woman traveling together as a married couple, particularly after they have a child together, really puts them, um, you know, subjects them to a great deal of scrutiny and puts them in danger. An Indian couple traveling around with their child, uh, traveling around the United States, they might be unusual, right? They might sort of, um, raise a few eyebrows, but they're not going to necessarily be, um, be persecuted and, and not prosecuted, certainly, for, for their marriage, for their relationship.
Now, as someone who does Southeastern Native history and Southern history, it's this topic seems like it took you a lot of places. It seems really emblematic that the South is never bound by these geographic parameters because something like a chalk, a pretend Choctaw or possible or reported Choctaw story, the story of a child born into slavery eventually manumitted through a whole array of mechanisms. That seems like the type of thing that could only happen in the early South in the Americas. And then it goes everywhere. So did this story take you places that you really did not expect? Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, the biggest twist of the story for me in doing the research was the Mormon angle. So, you know, uh, I, I really had no idea. Um, extant scholarship on La Seal, which is the name that Lucy Stanton, she, they both adopt many aliases, but that's the one that she uses for, for the, um, the bulk of her career. And the extant scholarship on her, uh, as recent as just a few years ago, says that she is Mohawk in Delaware, which is what she claimed in their composite autobiography and, um, and throughout her career um, as a stage performer. But the, the Mormon side of that was, was something that was a complete surprise. So that took me um, out of the South, you know, out to, to Utah. It took me into Missouri. It took me into looking at um, what becomes Nebraska, um, where they had winter quarters before they migrated out to the, to the Salt Lake Basin. Um, and the following them around took me outside the south and and it took me into a lot of places that i didn't expect to go toronto is one of them um a, a lot of research in new york because they were in new york for quite some time both new york city but also um in western new york and in, in buffalo and elsewhere um i started out on this project thinking that what i was writing about what i was going to write about was african americans and european descended americans in the south who claimed indian ancestry over a broad swath of time and I envisioned Okatubby's story as being one chapter in that book, right? Sort of exploring why people of African descent at various moments in Southern history um, made claims to indigenous ancestry and then what was behind that. But once the Mormon angle sort of evolved, I realized that I had a completely different or broader story on my hands. experience in doing early South history, Native South history in my, in my first book, um, you know, really kind of enabled me to, to keep the importance of the South alive, even as I was in, you know, Niagara Falls or in, in Toronto talking about sort of the tail end of their career. So as we discussed earlier, I think Okatebi's um, persona as a Choctaw is very much rooted in the intense ethnic intermixture and cultural intermixture of the early National South. So even if he doesn't have Choctaw ancestors, he is living in Natchez, a place that well into the late 1820s and even 1830s um, has lots and lots of Southeastern Indians coming into town. They're diplomats, they're peddlers, they're musicians, they're beggars. They're, they're all around. They're supplying meat for the city's tables. So he lived in this really rich multicultural world 
um, that that I was aware of in part because I had done this kind of work before. Later on in the book, um, towards the tail end, he begins to, his, his identity is sort of always questioned. It's questioned at various moments throughout this, the story that I tell. But towards the end of the book, he really gets outed, you might say. And this happens first in Southern papers. He becomes a victim of his own success. He gets so popular in the Northern um, press that the story starts to get picked up in the South and people in places that he had performed in the South, like Natchez, but also New Orleans, Vicksburg, St. Louis, um, so the South and the, the West, they begin to recognize him. And you start to see an, a sort of um, sectionalism emerge in the way that the two sets of papers, the sort of Northern press and the Southern and, and kind of Western press, depict him, with Southern papers basically saying, these Yankees are too ignorant to realize that this is an African-American man, basically getting over on them. That they don't, they are so, um, they're so unaware that they think that he is really an American Indian, whereas we Southerners clearly have a better, what I call in the book, a sort of racial acuity. And this is all happening at the same time that the Fugitive Slave Law is passed, which of course hinges on that logic of racial acuity, right? That slave owning, that a slave owning society is better equipped to identify people who belong in slavery, right? And that this is based on, on looking in many ways. Um, so even there, where, where he's up in Buffalo and then he's, you know, he's in Toronto and all kinds of things are happening in the Northeast and in Canada, um, the South never is never far behind him. It, it's, he's carrying that with him um, all the way. Wow, that is really dark that being able to out this one man who has made these decisions, God only knows why, at different points, buttresses the very logic of something like the fugitive slave law around acuity and phenotype and just Mm -hmm. something that I'm sure at the time the South wants to sell is racial intuition that, or intuition about what racial identity is, which is all bogus, but, oh... Yeah, it's very much, <laughs> it, it, it is dark. Really it's hard. It's very much based on, you know, on the logic of scientific racism that uh, that is also, you know, really reaching its its sort of um, its zenith in this same era uh, because there are constant references to his hair. There are constant references to his face, right? To his physiognomy as they would have put it. Um, and and what was striking to me is, you know, I'm, I alluded earlier to the fact that the the Choctaws in Indian Territory repudiate him later in life. So at this moment um, in the early 1850s when he's being outed by these southern papers, um, the Choctaw paper gets in the game. And the Choctaw paper, um, they, you know, identifying not so much as Choctaws, of course they certainly were, but identifying as southerners, they join in the chorus of southern voices saying, this is what passes for an Indian at the North. We know better. We would have been able to recognize him for what he is in a moment. But so they, so, so here you have, you know, another interesting to me sort of, you know, multi-layered vision of what the 19th century South really was like. And, and this really complicated notion of Southern identity where you have um, Choctaws editorializing as Southerners about this man Um, who they believe is is clearly African-American.
what strikes me about their story is even though there may be nothing real about their performative selves, his or hers, that in the construction of this performance, they seem to reveal something incredibly real about this period in the South or about how the South is working as a region. How did you, as a historian, start to try to put together what are the larger lessons that are real and important to know from their construction of this productive fiction? So in many ways that was kind of, um, that was one of the things I struggled with because I had to research this couple in many ways as if I were writing a biography. But my analysis of them and their choices is very much um, about precisely as you say, trying to say, see what do they tell us about the South as a region? What do they tell us about the nation? Um, in the South, in the nation, what do they tell us specifically about ideas of Indianness in the antebellum period? Um, and that was really where, you know, the the arguments in the book began to to crystallize around ideas of Indianness. And um, so, one of the one of those things that I realized, probably, sort of embarrassingly late in the process, was. Um, once they began performing as Indians together, they never performed further south than Washington, D.C. And so one of the things that you begin to see then is that this performative Indianness in the antebellum period, it really reached its limit um, as you traveled south. And um, southern audiences, I suspect, would have been much less sympathetic to this sort of person of indeterminate background who claimed to be Choctaw performing on their stage, paying money to see this person. And the way he's treated when his sort of quote unquote real identity is, is revealed later on in life confirms that suspicion, right? That he, is, he would not have been accepted in that way. And so, so one of the things that it taught me about, you know, I think that it shows about um, the South and the nation at this time is that ideas of Indianness um, and popular cultural beliefs about what American Indians look like, how they behaved, what their talents might be or their lack of talents might be, um, varied by region. It varied from place to place. And you know there was a sort of inverse relationship between like the, the smaller your Native American population was or was perceived to be, and the longer ago um, Native American issues were right on the front page of your newspaper every day or right on your doorstep, as the case may be, um, the more likely you were to accept this sort of nostalgic, romantic, performative Indianness, right? So Southerners in the 1840s are less likely to embrace this kind of performative Indianness. To me, this was, I, I hope that this is a, a kind of contribution to some of the literature on the study of, you know, playing Indian, but, but also the figure of the Indian in um, in literature, in the stage, in popular culture generally, that we can't make broad pronouncements about how this, how these ideas worked um, nationwide. Um, in fact, they they mutated as they traveled. They had to. They were perceived differently um, because of the different contexts, um, and of course, they changed over time. So that was, to me, that was one of the sort of key things that I that I learned as it, as I was going through it. Yeah, and it also seems then, in addition to like. He's playing up also historical, like you said, historical nostalgia, which is really interesting to me. 
this idea that not only is he perhaps performing another identity, but then he's also a little bit, like, for a Northeastern audience, he's like performing a past. And there's nothing real about that past, but their desire for the nostalgic past is what he's giving them via his vehicle of Choctaw-ness, in quotes. Right. So, you know, one of the things that, that I had to come to grips with relatively early on was while he might have used his, his um, invented Indian persona to escape some of the stigma of blackness, right? And this is something that, that Daniel Littlefield, who wrote about him in the 80s, also you know, postulated that he used Indianness as a sort of escape hatch from a lot of the things um, that restricted him, right? Um, both socially, but maybe also psychologically. But the subversive potential, the sort of emancipatory potential of what he's doing is, is limited by the fact that he is very directly underscoring damaging stereotypes of American Indian people. He is participating in and helping to craft and reiterating these extremely narrow ideas about Native people. You know, at a time when there are other Native people traveling around, people like um, George Copway and others who are traveling around, um, you know, trying to articulate a sense of what it, what it could mean to be an American Indian at that time. Um, not that they weren't also performing Indianness in a way, but, but yeah, I mean, there's, I think, in the literary studies of Okatebi, there's a tendency to want to see what he's doing as, um, as subversive, as, as liberatory, as emancipatory. And I think it can be that, but, you know, it's, it's possible for someone to both break free from their own restrictions at the same time that they're reinforcing the, the, the social and cultural restrictions that are um, enforced on another group. So a lot of American studies and Southern studies, sometimes I think to the outside viewer, or if you just scan conference proceedings, seems very focused in the 20th century or even the 21st century. Why is it important that people interested in understanding where we are today as a region, as a nation, go back to the early South and pay attention to what's happening? So that's a great question, and I feel like I could probably go on for days <laughs> about why. Um, but I'll just say a couple of things. I mean, I think one, um, you know, one of the questions that I that I pose to my students when I teach about the Native South is, I say, you know, let's not necessarily talk about where is the South. Let's talk about when is the South, right? Um, and so I think getting before the antebellum period. Right? Which, I mean, some people think the antebellum period is studying the early South, but getting us way back, maybe even into deep time, helps us to remember that the South is a relative concept, right? So I take my students back to the beginning um, of the English colonial settlement, for example, which is, you know, not even as far back as we go, but that's, we go back to that one stopping point and we say, okay, so South Carolina is really the North Caribbean, right? And that just sort of explodes their heads a little bit. Um, 
And that helps us to understand that the, some of the values of the, of the English colonists who were settling in the Carolina colony um, are in fact, we can understand them more by looking at the values of the planters in, um, in the Indies, right, in the West Indies, um, rather than sort of jumping forward to the antebellum period to understand the values of those planters by looking at, at planters later on, right? Um, for someone who does the Native South, I, I really am in favor of, of going even deeper back in time, right, into sort of deep time. Um, I think this is challenging for a lot of people, including myself, um, who do Southern Studies and even Native South, because we're usually not trained as archaeologists or even as anthropologists, and so it's very intimidating. But, you know, if, if we want to be able to talk about the agrarians in the New South uh, literature, right, who, and talk about the ways in which their identity and the identity of the region is so much grounded in, grounded in, sort of pun there, but the, the land, right, and relationships to the land, um, we need to first acknowledge that this was indigenous people's land and, that, and the processes by which um, it was taken from them, right? And that requires us to go way, 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 way back before colonization, before even DeSoto, right? Before any of these folks were there to understand um, the extremely complex societies and civilizations um, that of the people who first settled the South, right? Um, how those, for example, Mississippians um, crafted, how and why they crafted these enormous monumental um, structures, the, the mounds, um, and then we can then sort of use those to zoom forward in time and say, okay, well then how did the mounds um, play into the way in which then Europeans who were newcomers to the region thought about the history of the place? How did they, how did that structure, how they related to, to this space? What, how they began, became, um, began to see it as their own, right? So all of these questions that are familiar to 20th century Southern historians or even 21st century Southern historians about the environment, about foodways, about cultural interconnections between groups of people. Those are, are topics and questions um, that really require you to go much further back in time than just the sort of the plantation south or the antebellum south, which is, has for a long time been what we call the old south, right? Um, so I like to call it the old, old south when we go much, much further back. Because um, the old south was a very new south. The old, like, the old, old. Yes. Like thousands of years old. And then right. the plantation system explodes on the scene and changes everything. That's the majority of the population, particularly indigenous populations, new. Yes. And, you know, and, and, you know, the history of slavery is another place where, where I think we have gotten really stuck in a particular chronology and a particular geography. And we've lost the bigger picture of um, the, the history of um, indigenous enslavement in the South, right? Um, and, and again, reminding ourselves that South is a relative term. South exists in relation to North, and that is structured very much by an antebellum um, and then uh, you know, a Civil War era sectionalism um, that, and we, it's very ahistorical to go before the antebellum period, uh, before it, at least the founding of the United States, and even really talk about a South, right? For um, indigenous people who, um, in their creation stories and in their origin stories, they talk about migrating into this region, um, it's the East. So even just using the term South kind of unproblematically, 
that already posits a perspective. And so, you know, whereas I'm, I'm not sort of saying all 20th century or 21st century uh, historians or, or literary scholars of the South need to be completely retrained in everything that they do, but just to be aware that the, even the terms that we use posit a particular perspective. You're, if you're saying South, you're already standing somewhere, looking somewhere. Thank you for listening this week, and many thanks to Angela Polly Hudson and the American Antiquarian Society. Like us, you've probably been following the devastating flooding in North Carolina. Please text Matthew to 90999 to make a $10 donation to the Red Cross's relief efforts. Tomorrow, October 22nd, you'll find us at Passaquan's grand reopening. It's from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., and we've got links on all of our social media accounts about the event. We hope to see you there, and go back and check out Episode 4, Feel Lighter, for more about Passaquan. About South is brought to you from the historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia. We're on November 6th, we'll be at the Wren's Nest Blues and Barbecue Fundraiser. You can find more info on our website, aboutsouthpodcast.com. Kelly Vines is my fabulous co-producer for About South. Music is by Brian Horton. Next week, we've got a special spooky Halloween episode with Eric Gary Anderson. And William Faulkner makes a guest appearance. You heard that right. Tune in next Friday to find out more. Until then, we'll see you at Passiflon. How is Almond football going to be this fall? I'm asking you this. This will likely air in the middle of the season, so you need the best predictive answer. Uh, we need some offense. Yes. And I'm really uh, optimistic that we are going to have some offense. War Eagle. War Eagle. <laughs>